Five, four, three, two, one. Hello, Phil Common, bienvenue, konnichiwa. It's time for the Amish Inquisition yet again, episode 136 on Sunday the 14th of June. I'm Amish Phil. I'm Amish Ben. And I'm Amish Matt. And uh, tonight we've got Bernie Taylor on the line. Uh, Bernie is an independent naturalist and author whose research explores the mythological connections and biological knowledge among prehistoric Indigenous and Ancient Peoples. He's the author of two books, Biological Time from 2004 and Before Orion, Finding the Face of the Hero from 2017. How are you doing, Bernie? Welcome to the show. I'm doing great, guys. Thanks for having me on on this great Sunday afternoon here in Portland, Oregon. Our pleasure. <laughs> You're very welcome. Um, you guys know Portland, right? It's in the news. Where Where isn't in the news? <laughs> <laughs> Antifa. Portland is the home of Antifa. Is it? Ah. Yeah. Portland that... is also the home of Gordon Sunderland, who's the one who ratted out Trump. All right. Uh, All right. Former EU ambassador. Um, Portland, Portland is a very free-spirited town. Yeah? Yeah, yeah I've heard that. Liberal. Very good. And um, why don't you tell us a bit about how you got into this fascinating subject matter of ancient cave art and um, the, the beginnings of art for humanity. Yeah, the beginnings of who we are, truly. Yeah. And this is a program that will change everything you think you know about yourself and where you come from. Okay. Completely flips over. It's like you're walking along a beach and stepping on the sand, sand castles that people have built for thousands of years. And how I got into this was I literally stumbled across the sand, sand castles. I was interested in the timing of animals. Um, how does salmon up in the Pacific Northwest here in the United States, salmon run earlier or later from one year to the next? It was never fully resolved why they run earlier or later. So I studied the question. I was interested in the animals. And what I learned was they actually run on their own time because they, every year they run earlier or late together. And it's based on their biological clocks and how they time to the light of the sun and the moon combination between the two tied to endocrinology biological clocks all that sort of stuff the same hypothesis that ties into migratory birds and other animals and i get praised i did biological time about 13 years ago gave presentations to um, biological conferences that sort of stuff as well as um fish and wildlife agencies and then i met the tribes i went around to tell the story to the, the tribes in the pacific northwest we have real indians here real indians that fish and hunt and gather in the traditional way Okay. It's supplemented by Costco, but they, they're still hunter-gatherer traditions. And they tell stories. They tell myths. And they explain their life history, their, their creation stories. And they explain how they hunt and fish through their myths. So they're, they're, the myths pass on meaning. And they also have rock art. And what I found pretty quick was that their myths and stories coincided with what the biology was saying, which makes sense because... If your myth tells you it's a bad myth that doesn't tell you when to be there for the salmon when they arrive, 
your population ends because you starve. So the myth has to work and the rock art and this, this tribal information. And someone said to me, well, if the Native Americans have this information, perhaps people in you know, cave, you know, Stone Age, Upper Paleolithic Europe had the same traditions. So I started going through the literature and looking at the images and lo and behold, in the caves of Lascaux in France, 17,000 years ago, the nomenclature, the dots and the marks next to each animal is exactly the same as the animals are time in the same way as the Native Americans um, hunt and fish in, this, in their traditions. I, I did, you know, exactly the same thing. And it wasn't just my work that supported the biological work. There was also, there's a wealth of literature in the primary, you know, primary sphere. So what I said though, I explained why the salmon are earlier or later, as well as migratory waterfowl and other animals. And that was an important thing. So it brought me to the capes. And I wrote Biological Time, did my, did my pitch, and I, I was ahead of my, I was ahead in the science at the, for the moment. I said, I'm gonna put this on the shelf for 10 years, come back and see what I can do from there. You know, revisit the subject. Came back 10 years later, looked in some new caves that had been recently dated, El Castillo Cave in Spain. And it was dated to about 40,000 years ago based on a new technique. And I started doing the exact same thing as I was doing before. I looked at that panels, I started counting the numbers. I started, and then I couldn't make any sense of the numbers in this El Castillo cave 40,000 years ago. I couldn't find any patterns as I found with the animals at Lusco um, and some other places. And I was sitting back one day and just kind of wide-eyed, staring, you know, glowing at the screen, just like, you know, Amish Matt is doing right now. And I, I said, oh my God, that looks like a lion. And I said, well, you know, I showed somebody else. Yeah, it does look like a lion. And a few minutes later, I said, that looks like an elephant. I showed something else that said, yeah, that's definitely an elephant. There are two things about this, this lion and the elephant. One was that this lion had a mane, and the elephant was, had a flat head, which is unique to African elephants. There were elephants in Europe at the time, 40,000 years ago, but they had a humped head, as do um, Asian elephants. So I reached out to a friend, actually not a friend, but someone I'd met in my mid-20s, I'm 55 now. His name is George Schaller. George Schaller is considered the world's foremost uh, field wildlife biologist. Jane Goodall, everybody you could possibly imagine, George was their mentor. I mean, absolutely everybody. And I met George, um, when I've been in Beijing in my early 20s, and through a friend of a friend, we're at, you know, on a tour. I mean, just like, you know, a group tour through an association. He didn't remember me, but of course I remembered him because that, that month he was in National Geographic and he was surrounded by these snow leopards and he was doing a Rolex commercial. Okay. Um, so he, he was a big player then, he's a big player now and no one, will, no one will doubt what George says. He's the guy, he's very humble as well. So I, George and I, we went through the, went through the, the, the elephant, the um, lion, and we had, we had communications over about a year period and we identified in, two, in this cave and another one, probably maybe 50 or 60 animals that had not been recognized before, which asks, which draws up another question, why weren't they recognized? But what was something that was unique about these animals is that some were in Europe, in, indigenous to Europe, some were marine animals, um, like there's a dolphin, there's a whale, there's a monk seal, there's a the now extinct great auk, there's a crab, marine crab and some others, and then some were indigenous to Africa. 
big deal because no, there has never been identified a link between Africa and Europe other than DNA. Right. So there, there's, pe there's people who argue that we don't come out of Africa. I mean, th they do. They say we come out of Europe. And you, heard, you've had pe you may have had people on the program. And because it, it asked that question, well, why don't why didn't people in Europe have all these artifacts of Africans? And we clearly don't look like Europeans don't look like sub-Saharan Africans. It's not a race thing. It's just what it is. Okay. Um, and so yeah, connected the two. And so the art this artist had lived in Spain, on the Iberian Peninsula. Actually, multiple artists. They had traveled across the Strait of Gibraltar, which is about a three-hour swim if you're in good shape get the tide, get the, the currents right. And yeah. then he landed in West, in West North Africa, which say Morocco. He spent time there and then he traveled back to tell his story. And uh, it's, it's a pretty phenomenal concept because this was like a first, it was a first like ever. Compl changes what we thought about who we are and where we come from. And then what happened was there started to be a pattern in this, in these animals. They just, so the, the European animals, there's a horse, there's an, a golden eagle, there's an Iberian lynx. Um, and then the African animals, um, there's a giraffe, it was clearly a, a, um, an animal of, the, of Africa and others. And these animals weren't just what was on the land and the sea. It, so it, it became a, a map. So you knew when you were traveling from north to south and back again, where you were based on the animals in your environment. Right. So if so you saw an Iberian yeah. lynx, ties into the image, you're in the north. If you see a horse, you're in the north. If you see a monk seal, you're at the Strait of Gibraltar. If you're in Africa, you see the, the, um, the giraffe. And in old maps, you know, you used to see these like creatures and animals, you know, all over them to tell you, you know, this is the, the danger zone, this is the monster, the end of the world, but this is the elephant and this is the bear. And today we use Russia as the bear, um, United States as the golden eagle. So it's, it became our first map. It was an early map, the first map that we, we currently have. So, so this, this idea of a knuckle dragon caveman who could make some good art, which we've known for a while, he made maps. And he'd made maps of the places that he went. So Amish Phil is taking some notes and about to ask a question before I go further. I had a question as well, actually. Do you want to go first, Phil? No, Ben is WhatsApping me. Oh, about okay. the, about the audio. Well, I was going to ask, because I've, I've read a bit of the um, before Orion, and I was looking at the pictures, mm -hmm. and you were talking about... Um, the the animals that you saw in mm -hmm. the in the panel i think you call it don't you um are they actually etched into the panel or is it that it's the formations of the rock that sort of you're interpreting as those shapes good of questions animals? that's a very good question what the artist did well the gallery disc panel which is the one in the earlier part of the book mm -hmm. if you look at the top of the gallery disc it looks all this mineral matter it's all gray and brown okay mm -hmm. The entire panel was originally, that's its natural state for the entire panel. And then what the artist did, you start scraping off. And every, so everything you see in white is, shows the limestone background is material that has been removed. So what the artist did was he, as he, he took off material, he also made engraving, engraving and he painted the red and, red and black dots as well as a blue, and blue space. Right. And he, cre he created he created the art by taking away 
material, the graving and the uh, mineral material, as well as adding paint to it. So mm -hmm. a common combination of all of the above. Right. Okay. And this is brilliant. Awesome. I mean, this is um, I, here in Portland. We have Wacom, which makes tablets. You might. This is what all the animators use. And I go to I go to these Wacom seminars, and I show these Hollywood level animators and the people mm -hmm. that come in. They do their stuff, and they get presentations just for um, for artists. And I go along just you know for kicks, and I show them this stuff, and they're amazed because. Right. They've never seen anything like this. Mm -hmm. And so what it says is that the, just as we have geniuses today, genius is a factor of the individual. You don't go to college to become a genius. You don't go get a PhD to become a genius. You were a genius before you got to college, okay? Mm -hmm. And you know, I give the story of Bobby Fischer in the book. Bobby Fischer was yeah. the lone wolf. And he, he actually, he's playing chess against the entire Russian machine where they are you know, pulling kids from early ages, teaching them chess and math throughout school to bring them to that world-class level, whereas Bobby Fischer learned to pay, play chess in his shabby Brooklyn room, mm -hmm. okay? He was born to be, he, he was born to have the skills of a chess, chess player. And I believe that there's some people who are born to have the skills of being great artists. Yeah. And that's not in, a, um, that's not something you're taught. Um, just as great ma Bobby Fischer wasn't taught to do chess or great mathematicians, you know, people walk outside, great mathematicians walk outside their home and they see math everywhere. They see, you know, algorithms. It's, it's in your DNA. It's in who you are. And it's something that's inherited. And I believe just as we have it today, people had it a thousand years ago. People yeah. 4,000 years ago who figured out how to build the pyramids. And people 40,000 years ago who made this incredible art that's mm -hmm. not just the animals in their environment, and it's not just myth of the story from, that they had, and not just the geography, but most important of all, it's the basis of astronomy. Mm. Do we think that that's where these ubiquitous myths come from originally, from astronomy? Well, they're, car they're certainly carried through astronomy. And we, you know, we've, in school, we learned about Joseph Campbell. And Joseph Campbell, he was a Jungian, um, based in the Swiss psychoanalyst Carl Jung. And he wrote The Portable Jung. And Jung said that there are archetypes, there's archetypes, there's the hero, there's the teacher, the apprentice, there's the damsel in distress, and then there's the villain. And when the archetypes are encountered, the story is evoked. Joseph Campbell said, okay, I'm good with the archetypes, but we do find these, co these common ubiquitous <laughs> myths around the world. So it's, it can't be just the archetypes, that there must be, there's a fundamental structure. Well, one could say that in these, these great myths, especially of the hero's journey, that's a structure of the human experience that we go on a journey and we learn about ourselves. But Joseph Campbell said, that's not enough. He said, there had to have been an original place because I'm finding details within this myth, this hero's journey myth, that are so unique that it can't be just archetypes and it can't be just the human experience. So Joseph Campbell said that there was a you know, cave somewhere 20,000 years ago in Siberia where people um, encountered these myths and they traveled around the world because he knew that Native Americans had similar myths to the people in Europe as well as uh, Siberia. And so he said that was, Siberia was the central point. Joseph Campbell also went to the Paleolithic Caves and he said, well, it's all myths. 
Well, it's not all myths because well, he said those there's, there's um there's um horses over here and there's a rhino over there and there you know you don't mix too much with horses and rhinos therefore it's a, it's systematic therefore it's a myth it doesn't make it a myth okay I'll tell you that but um so Joseph Campbell was not correct about that but he was correct that there was an original myth um, and I would argue that the original myth is at least forty thousand years ago I don't believe I think it goes back tens if not hundreds of thousands of years before that and mm -hmm. so your question of astronomy is that ubiquitous myth in astronomy what we find in these characters is the horse they mentioned becomes the constellation pegasus okay the eagle next to the horse becomes the, the constellation agila and on the other end as we go through the panel the the dolphin becomes pisces the the monk seal becomes cetus the constellation cetus the monster and you know if you heard a you heard a, a monk seal in the night you'd probably think it was a monster too um, <laughs> and so as we go through this whole panel we find at least 20 constellations that the Greeks had not just the same animals for in human characters, but they had the same order. So Ursa Major is exactly in the night sky where it's supposed to be. And what the Calithic artist did, he captured a moment in this El Castillo cave, like on the gallery of discs, which I have it. Um, people can, w, you can go to my YouTube page before Ryan.com, my webpage before Ryan.com, and he captured the moment. So he has this golden eagle. It's not just an eagle. It's an eagle that's about a foot high. It's fledging, has a little, has a little bit of down on its, its wings. It's a bird that hasn't flown yet, which would signify about late June time period on the Iberian Peninsula. So if you walked out of your window today, walked outside today, and you saw swallows, for example, you'd say, well, I don't usually see swallows in December. Therefore, it's a warmer time of year. Okay. If you saw an owl right now, you probably say it's summertime because owls are a migratory bird and that you might not have where you are, that you might not have them there in the wintertime. Okay. Um, and so we, the artist did the same thing, is he captured a moment that it was his time and place when the earth and sky become one. He became the master of the two realms. So did people travel around the world back to the astronomy? Is it the this ubiquitous myth is carried in astronomy. It is for some characters. So for Ursa Major, as the as the, the bear and the she bear, we find that character um, all around the world. Not everywhere, but we do find it around the world wherever there are bears. Mm -hmm. And I believe it was, it was carried through the same as the astronomical myths. Whereas we lost, you know, horses. In, we don't have horse myths among Native Americans because they didn't have horses for you know fifteen thousand years or something. Um, so all the animals didn't transfer, but the bear did, and the dog did as well. So Cirrus as a dog, or Canis Major in this dog constellation, we find that around the world as well. So yeah, these are, there, there are two animals that people traveled with them, um, or they were in their, envi their environments when they arrived, the dog and the bear, and we find these as in myths and, and astronomy around the world. Yeah, Phil, that was a good question. Trying my best. I've had to stop my video momentarily because the the audio was getting a bit garbled, but it seems to have cured it. So sorry about that. Oh no, so, I know you're there. It's um, going back to you were talking about geniuses, and um, often we're sort of um, brainwashed into for since childhood into thinking of Paleolithic humans as being unsophisticated, grunting, club club wielding. Uh, <laughs> you know, savages, and, and we have to realise that these these people were anatomically modern humans with this, just as smart as us. 
Exactly. About 1900, people had uh, found art in the Spanish cave of Altamira. There was a movie made about it with Antonio Banderas. And when the, the, the amateur archaeologist um, and his friends, they found this art, his daughter as well, they said, based on the animals that are depicted and, and the bones that they're fine, this is from tens of thousands of years ago. And the professional archaeologist said, well, we don't have any other evidence of this. And for so 10, 10, 10, 000, 10, um, 10 years or so, it got buried. buried. Picasso was brought in at about 1906 to, to take a look at it. And the question was, could it be fraud? I mean, could this... And Picasso was, was a, um, a well-known artist at the time. Picasso looked at it and he came out and said, none of, none of us could have done anything like this because he <laughs> saw patterns and he saw techniques that were not in modern art. And Picasso, before he went rogue effectively, he was a student of the arts itself. He went to, he was a career, he was a, went to art school. Um, he knew what people were doing in his time as well as people had done in the past. And he said, none of us could have absolutely done anything like this. Well, Picasso had a secret. Picasso saw things that he never talked about. And he borrowed images from Altamira and he used them in his 1907 Les Demoiselles d'Avignon, the first modern art painting, the rupture moment. And he puts these masks that he finds in the cave and he puts them on uh, the faces of two women in Les Demoiselles d'Avignon. And it was grotesque, it was insane. One of his friends said, we're going to find Picasso one day hung behind his great canvas. Um, and that became modern art, but it really wasn't modern art. Picasso borrowed directly from images in the Altamira cave. And throughout his career, he borrowed from Altamira and other caves. So Picasso didn't invent cubism. Picasso didn't invent modern art. In fact, I would argue he wasn't even a modern artist. Picasso was a Paleolithic artist who carried on the traditions. So was Picasso a genius? Well, if Picasso was a genius, these Paleolithic cave artists were greater geniuses because he borrowed from them. <laughs> and, but there was a little bit of genius in Picasso as well. Picasso not only borrowed the images, he borrowed the metaphors from the characters. So he said that the bull, uh, high testosterone, was um, you know, the image of brutality, which he substituted for Franco in his art. He took the horse in the cave images, the pregnant mare, to say that is the epitome of the Spanish people and their suffering, which he used in, in Guernica. He borrowed the image to use in that, that famous painting. So Picasso went beyond the, um, the just borrowing, to say kindly, the images, but he, he made, he created a new life for them, but a life that we would all recognize, because when we see a bull, a fear response comes from us. We see rage, we see testosterone, we see brutality. Um, and if we see the, the, the pregnant mare, we see the horse that's about to give new life. So yes, the, the genius has been with us for a long time. And geniuses, universities who, who, name, who may name the entire university or um, a building or a lab or institute or department after genius, the genius existed, that individual, before the academic institution. Galileo, you know, Copernicus, you can go down the line. These are people that were on their own. And then science brought their work and carried it forward. And I would argue that is the case with Paleolithic cave artists to do, that modern art itself 
um, doesn't come from academia, but rather it comes from the palette, these original um, genius artists. And I'm not slamming at academia. I speak in um, universities all the time, in, ac in academic institutes. Um, it, it's a, we have to recognize that genius comes from within, you can't teach genius. But you, if someone has genius within, you can accentuate that genius by providing them with more knowledge and greater opportunity. Right. It's a question of honing, honing your skills, I guess, to a degree. And adding base knowledge. Yeah, base knowledge. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's incredible. I didn't realize that there were almost like a, a bass relief technique that was used. Exactly. You, you think of Messi, right? <laughs> Messi would have been a great soccer player, whether or not he went to play for Barcelona, right? I mean, he was already, he was a kid, he was a short kid. He was, you know, out dribbling every, he was from Brazil or Argentina, right? And uh, he was a phenomenal soccer player before he arrived in Europe, okay? And Cristiano Ronaldo, he has something in him. And there are some, I'm, I'm sure there are some, you know, UK, UK football players that have some talent too. Can you name any? Wayne Rooney was one, wasn't he? Up until recently, I'd say. Okay, there we go. We got, we got one. That's good. That's good, guys. <laughs> so that's good for the UK audience. We just can't keep talking about these, these uh, other, uh, other Europeans. <laughs> no, those you know, you're, the greatest of your soccer players actually come to football players come to the United States, um, and they play for our MLS teams, and they're they're like rock stars. You know, we give them. Um, we give them, you know, we bow to them and they make the game so much more fun. They typically become the captains of the teams. They certainly become the, the backbone of the teams. So we appreciate all that you export in, in football um, and good food to us. Good food. That's a bit of it, right? <laughs> We're not known for our cuisine. No. <laughs> we have that, uh, that, uh, this the the turkey or the chicken that has the you, you tear it off and it's crackling <laughs> yeah gotta give you gotta give that one some credit right it's unique is it what is it crackling chicken or something i have absolutely no idea no idea <laughs> it's got like a hard <laughs> shell to it crackling <laughs> new one on me you, you have a well, fish and chips fish and chips we're, yeah. you know <laughs> That. Yeah, mushy peas. Don't forget your mushy peas, Bernie. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, okay. Black <laughs> pudding. <laughs> oh my word! <laughs> so going back to Joseph Campbell. I mean, we've only ever discussed Joseph Campbell in the context of Star Wars. <laughs> yes. Um, because George but, Lucas famously said that he was part of his inspiration, this sort of template. Mm -hmm. um, why don't you explain a bit? more to us about this template of the hero's journey and, and yeah absolutely that's yeah, a good one okay yeah. so well actually it's, it's a good one to talk about with star wars especially <laughs> okay so um george lucas studied the works of joseph campbell with unbeknownst to joseph campbell it wasn't until after a few of the movies were made or at least one movie was made that those two connected and joseph campbell went out to the skywalker ranch and they um it, he was absolutely flabbergasted and Joseph Campbell at that point had, was a retired professor. Uh, I think it was Sarah Lawrence College, I'm not, I'm not sure. But he was, he was living in an apartment in New York, in a uh, you know, two-bedroom two apartment. He was a simple guy continuing to write at his kitchen table. Um, and what George Lucas did was he said, 
I want to create a great story in this movie, a story that everybody could understand, a story that when they, they find these characters, they feel them, they mean something to them, that they find these archetypal characters and the stories evoked. So everybody knows that Darth Villain will be, is the villain and you have to have a villain in the story. And everybody knows that George Lucas is the damsel, in is, the, is the hero and, and Prince, Princess Leia is the damsel in distress, but a little bit of a twist on that, right? Okay. So, he, um, Joseph Campbell said that the hero goes on a journey and actually he, he actually borrowed that from other people just to let you know the hero's journey predates Joseph Campbell um, the hero goes on a journey he leaves a place of his normality in terms of George, um, Luke Skywalker of course is George Lucas right we know that right okay they're the same so George the backstory in this whole thing is George Lucas came from a small town. His dad had like a stationery yeah. store or something like that. His dad wanted him to go into the business. Um, George Lucas wanted to, you know, he wanted to go to Hollywood. He wanted to make movies. He wanted to explore the stars, okay? That's what's going on in the back of his head. So George Lucas's nemesis is his father. The father who, who he doesn't want to be, his father who is part of the institution, that, who's part of the, the imperial army of sorts, right? The imperial workforce, the mainstream of America. So the, the mirroring, the, the, George Lucas is not telling a story about um, space and all this stuff. He's telling his own story about life, about how he faces his father. And when he comes to face his father, he realized he, he has his father in him. So George, uh, Luke Skywalker in the second movie, he leaves his place of normality. He encounters... Um, um, magical people who help him. Um, 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 Obi-Wan Kenobi, former Jedi, and then as well as um, Yoda. And part of the hero's journey is the person, the individual gets help from other people. In the Pelican Cave Artist, the same thing happens. The hero, as he travels, he encounters all these animals. He, he encounters the horse, becomes Pegasus that he rides on. He encounters the, the eagle, Aguila, who give him, um, he can fly and get him strength. He actually is carried, he's actually lifted by the dolphin in the Strait of Gibraltar. So all the animals help him in, the, in this palliative cave journey, just as the um, Chewie, right? Yoda and these other um, animal mystical beings help um, Luke Skywalker. So Luke Skywalker leaves his place of normality. He separates from his home. He, he answers the call, as, as um, Joseph Campbell would say. And we're going to jump forward to the second movie, second movie, and uh, the Empire Strikes Back, and uh, the 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 whatever guy, um, <laughs> and then the there's a scene that Yoda and Luke are outside the cave, the, the Dogobah cave, I believe it is, and Luke Luke is being called to the cave, and you can hear Luke Luke right, and. Um, and Yoda says, he says to Yoda, he asks Yoda, what's in there? And he, Yoda says, only what you take with you. Key thing. So what, when you go into the cave, you're taking all your own fears and anxieties. You're taking your past history. You're taking all the baggage that you've accumulated in life. And you're going in there to face yourself. So Luke goes into the cave and he encounters... Um, um, Darth Vader. 
And if you haven't seen the movie, any listeners, you know, this has been like 40 years, right? So, you know, I'm, there's no spoilers. No. <laughs> yeah. So Luke, Luke gets into the swashbuckling type of scene with Darth Vader. And Luke, join the force, <laughs> back and forth. And, so on. and then Luke, take, in his anger, important point, in his anger, he takes his lightsaber, slashes out the neck of Darth Vader, and his helmet falls off to the ground. And in the helmet, Amish Matt, what do we see? Luke Skywalker. He sees himself. Yeah. He sees himself. Very important. So he sees that be, through his, if he fights through his own anger, he becomes Darth Vader himself. He becomes the dark, dark force. Just mm -hmm. as um, George Lucas had something going on with his dad. Okay, this is the same. It's this is the thing going, thing going on here. That's where the story came from. Okay, so going back to Pelly the cave artist, we've entered the cave. And the only thing we take in that cave is ourself, which is almost an exact quote from Joseph Campbell, who wrote it before Star Wars was made. Okay? So when we go into this Paleolithic cave 40,000 years ago, we're taking all our baggage. And you can imagine an apprentice, 12 years old, going in, you know, what is his path in life? Everything's determined on how successful he is in that cave. And that's what I describe. I, in the chapter one of Before Ryan, I make the reader the apprentice. I test the, the, the reader through the process. And you come to feel the same pain, the fears and desires of that apprentice. And you yourself are, you know, you're absolutely tested. So the apprentice goes in and he's got to figure out this thing. He's shown the, he's shown the panel and it's a test. And he has to recognize you know, does he see the elephant? Does he see the, does he see the lion? Or does he just stare at the red disc as I did when I first started looking at these images? What does he do? And not just me, but millions of people have seen that gallery disc image in the, in the media. And every one of them had stared at the red disc. They couldn't see the forest through the trees. And they missed the oldest magical trick in the world, the elephant in the room. And this actually becomes the elephant in the room. So the apprentice is in the cave and he, he's tested and he has to, you know, he has to make the connection between what's on that cave panel and every myth that he's been told and every, every group of stars in the night sky that he's seen. Because if he can't figure this thing out, he can't make the journey. That journey is not just a journey within, of his own maturation, his own um, self. The journey is that he's going to have to go from Iberian Peninsula and northern part of Spain now, all a few hundred miles south, swim across the Strait of Gibraltar, go to Africa, go to a place, which you guys won't know until you get to the end of the book, go to a very special place where he then ultimately faces himself. That's the big one. And when he faces himself at the end of the book, as I described in the end of the book, he returns back again to tell his story. And in essence, that's Joseph Campbell's hero's journey. And that's what, what ended up in the last Star Wars movie, you remember? So we went, so what, the problem with the Star Wars, I love Star Wars and I love George Lucas and I hope the whole, the whole thing. But what happened was um, Luke Skywalker through all those movies didn't complete his hero's journey, right? And he, and so they, they, I think it was the, la the last movie, they had to kind of wrap that one up, okay? <laughs> and so Luke does come back. It was maybe the last one, the, the one before that. They had to wrap up the story. So Luke does come back. 
and he faces his own um, his own fears. His own fear was that he had raised um, Kylo. Um, Kylo becomes a rogue rogue Jedi, becomes part of the dark part of the Force. His own fear, his own failure, um, and he faces down Kylo, and um, and then he ultimately disappears. So he has returned to complete his journey. Um, and that's how they, they wrapped up Luke, you know, eight episodes later. Mm. Um, uh, Joseph Campbell would have, would have been struggling with that whole thing because they're kind of dragging out. They're dragging out the hero's journey. The first, two, the first two movies pretty much covered it, except to the point that he faces himself and he has to come back. Because um, he um, Luke Skywalker really doesn't come back to the end, where then his short story is shared on. And you have these, these two kids, like in a, in a colony, that you know they're playing with these characters of of telling the story at the end, um, and one kid has like some Jedi Force. He like waves his hand and a broom moves or something like that. Um, but yeah, that's the connection with Joseph Campbell, Carl Jung, Pele the Cave Art, and of course um, George Lucas's own life and his experience with his dad is wrapped up into this whole thing. Um, and that was the, what was brilliant about Star Wars was that he was able to pull these things together. So that we all understand these same things. We all struggle, with, all men struggle with their fathers. All women struggle, girls struggle with their, with their mothers. And when we break free, as Jung would say, you have to, as a male, you have to separate from your parents. You have to break free from your mother, especially the bulk, in bulk accord. You have to break free to, to find out who you really are. And that's what, um, for, for um, Luke Skywalker's thrust upon him because his parents were killed. It was a, because adopted parents were killed, right? And um, so, yeah, it's all wrapped together. And um, I hope I answered that as well as all those characters would have liked. Oh, yeah, definitely. And um, going back to the, um, the cave painting, and uh, is it your theory that it's, it's, it's one individual? who's done this hero's journey and then recorded it in the cave? Or do you think that that was something that was passed down previously? So it was a previous guy who went to Africa and came back and, and then it was recorded at a later date, maybe in the cave. I think that the first, well, the, the hero's journey, I believe the hero's journey existed hundreds of thousands of years before that and was told what? in myth and, and it possibly told in the stars. The, the, the gallery disc and the other images that I show I believe they're each made by one, each made by individual artists. Okay. Right. And you'll know for sure when you reach the end of the book, you'll know, you'll know why. Okay. But I'm not going to tell you because then you, I'm not going to tell you the story. Um, tell you the end of the book before. But they were each, each, each panel was made by one person who had been to Africa and back again. And then I believe that it became the map and the story for the apprentices to take that same journey. So when the, every apprentice came back, he didn't make his mark on the panel. And, you know, and the reason is that part, in addition to you'll know at the end of the book, but the images overlap with each other. So the man overlaps, the man at the, let's say the, the right or north end, he overlaps with the horse to become a centaur. The horse overlaps with the eagle to become the winged horse Pegasus. That all had to be done at one time because of the overlapping of the images. Right. OK. 
Okay. So I believe that the, you know there might be some modifications as I described in the book, but the the, the central characters were done each by individual geniuses. Now, when we look at this, this is in modern art, we don't have anything like this. We don't have anything at this level. Picasso wasn't even this good. So how many thousands of years or tens of thousands of years have to go by before we find some of this caliber of artistic genius? How many thousands of years go by before we find someone like an Einstein who can visualize um, you know, the cosmic order? It's because uh, you know, he didn't do it in a big lab. He did it working as a, a patent clerk. You know, he, it all happened in his head. So how many thousands of years and tens of thousands of years happened, I don't know. Now, go, I, I'm saying that, so prior to my work, the oldest story that we had in record that we could actually date was the Epic of Gilgamesh, dating about 4,500 years ago. And Gilgamesh told the story of a hero on his journey. And he was a, he starts off as a pretty bad guy, okay? He's like, you know, Trump on steroids. Um, and he, um, at the end of the story, he returns out, he takes his, his journey, faces himself, and returns as a, you know, a renewed person. And from what Gil, from Gilgamesh, we can say, we've said for a long time, that for, at least for 4,500 years ago, the personalities of people have not changed, because we can date the story. Well, I've just put that back tens of thousands of years before that. Because not only do we just have the same story and with the same characters, but we have the same story and the characters that the Greeks used in many of their myths and project to the night sky as constellations and the same constellations as these Pelican cave artists had. So why would we say that it's just 40,000 years ago? When I was writing the book, there was a major discovery made and it was a place called Jebel Erhud in Morocco. And they dated Homo sapiens, you and I, remains to, to 300,000 years ago. It was a pretty big deal. Because prior to that, the oldest remains were like 230,000 years ago, and that was in, in Southern Africa, or it's like East, Southeast Africa. And what it said was that there were multiple origins of Homo sapiens. Well, our, our candidate, our hero in this story, all begins in, well, we, we find the story that travels between, Afri between the Iberian Peninsula and Africa, but who's to say that this story didn't begin in, in Morocco at Jebel or Hood, which is within you know, a day's walk of where he lands um, after swimming across the Strait of Gibraltar. And this, the only thing indistinguished, the, the Jebel or Hood um, skulls are indistinguishable from us, except that the back of the heads are a bit, little bit elongated. Other than that, they would look just like us. You wouldn't, you couldn't, you know, look like any of you three. Um, and so the question then became, uh, and now becomes, are these, I pushed it back to 40,000 years ago. Why not 300,000 years ago? Because you don't start etching the constellations and the, your myths in a cave wall. You tell them around campfires and as you, as you travel. And that's what Joseph, Camp Joseph Campbell would have said that as well. So I would argue that this goes back for hundreds of thousands of years ago. We haven't changed that much. We've, we, the good and bad within all of us is in our DNA. And all these archetypal characters, we're all heroes. We're all villains. We're all teachers. We're all apprentices. And where we are on our journey is, 
expresses which character we are in the moment. Oh. Just going back to the, uh, you mentioned the elongated skulls. Mm-hmm. That, I've seen things like this found in, in South America as well. Yeah, now, okay, so they're not that kind of elongation. They're like slightly, yeah, so not the, the Panaka skulls, yeah. So this is, um, yeah, they're, if you if you hit your head in the ground really hard and you had a huge welt, just figure mm. twice that size. Wow. Whereas the, what, the, the the ones in, in Peru are, you know, you know, they're cone head, right? They're like Saturday Night Live type of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, going back to the the three hundred thousand year skulls, is that due to a binding, do you think, as as, cha- as as a child? Or is it a genetic no, they, uh, so the, well they're they're not um it, it's it believes the natural formation right so some so you know between you guys kind of look at but your foreheads are roughly the same okay your forehead your, your nose is about the same it changes and so on if you went to south compare you with people in south america there'd be some differences or people sub-saharan africa so these are not like it's not a huge difference they're, they're not huge different there there are differences between us across races okay let's put it out there but um, this is like a s- slightly more than that, a natural versus a something that wasn't done intentionally, like the banding yeah. that you find in South America. Well, actually, what's proposed right. to be the banding in South America, that's that's argument of you. There are other people who are better versed in that. Yeah. So it's, it's within the bounds of sort of human variability between Correct. where different, different um, races, if you like. Correct. So, Absolutely. for example, the Inuit uh, people, they're, they're genetically disposed to have a, a face a, like a, in certain characteristics, which are advanced rounder. environment. <laughs> okay, the rounder. It's exactly. The rounder, the nose is smaller. Um, and it's an environment, their, their genetics will carry on to be able to adapt in cold environments. Um, mm. So, yes, it's within the natural variability would be good. Yeah, Jebler Hood. It, it was nature science. It was a pretty big deal because what it it came to tell us is that we just didn't pop out of Africa, out of South Africa, but there was a, there were separate there was separate development in other parts of Africa, Morocco, and then that also tied into you have um, Denisovians and other peoples that were finding in the DNA that there there was a time in our past when it was like you know, Lord of the Rings, okay? And you had hobbits and you had, you know, people look like us and you had elves and so on. You know, and, and once in a while they intersect with each other, but that was our past. Um, and of course they were, they were wizards, you know, they were the Gandalfs of the time. And those are the people that we, we find as the shaman the, on this hero's right. journey. Yeah, druids, etc. in the Celtic druid, yeah. tradition. Absolutely, yeah. It's it's a, it's of the same ultimate lineage. You um you sort of hinted about maybe therianthropes back there. Yeah. Th- okay. Yeah. Therians was a pretty big deal. So if we look at the Giza, um, the Giza Sphinx, right? We have the head of a, the head of a human, and then we have the body of a lion. Okay. Yeah, that's what it is. And people, you know, that's a therianthrope. Okay, that's what it is. A theriantrope in the Paleolithic tradition is when you 
when you overlap the man and the animal. So when the man overlaps with the animal, he becomes a centaur. When he, he overlaps with the bird, he becomes an avianoid, an angel, right? Let's say it, let's put out an angel. Um, and we find that avianoid angel tradition all around the world among non-Christian peoples. Um, so the, we actually, you're going to see it later in the book. I'm not going to tell you the, the details, but you're going to find the, um, the secret to, the, to Giza. You're going to see it. <laughs> so, what, so what happened? So this is what happened, is that ancient peoples in the Mediterranean were going to these caves. It was like their Disney world. Okay. Or maybe they're, 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 they're Tate or they're MoMA. And they, they looked at the images and they took them back and they found, they recognized this is the hero and this is the damsel in distress, all that sort of stuff. You know, it's not a, a no-brainer. And they cr create monsters and there's a crocodile they created a monster out of. Uh, they create a dragon. It becomes the first. So we talk about the constellations. There's a, there's a huge crocodile, which is a, probably 15 meters. Um, and that became the constellation Draco, which becomes our first dragon. So where do dragons come from? Well, you got it right here. So the St. George myth um, that you guys all know. Did you, did you ever like swashbuckle with, you know, have little wooden swords and fight each other over dragons when you're kids? Oh, yeah. I'm sure yeah. at some point. <laughs> okay, that's fair. Yeah. So that myth, I believe, goes back to this. Because dragons, the first dragons that we have are the Pelican Capes. Okay. And uh, so I view the St. Saint, Saint George myth goes back as a hero's journeys myth. Um, where he rescues the damsel in stress, he faces down the dragon, he slays the dragon. Well, I believe that um, that comes from this cave or, and other caves that have the same, because they, these, these cave panels have the same story. Okay. We're talking about the gallery of discs right now. Um, so back to, the, back to the fairy antropes. That's really important. Um, it's, a sh it's a shamanic tradition that we've known about for at least 200 years that, um, and I don't want to say sham because people, a, sh a shamanic tradition in the Pacific Northwest among Native American is different than one in Siberia, okay? There's different characteristics, okay? Let's call it a shamanic tradition. Um, so in the, sh in the shamanic traditions in Siberia, the, the shaman will, will go into a dance and perhaps he'll dance like a horse. And he believes in that moment that he is a horse. He's taking on the spirit of the horse, okay? He may then trans transition into a, a bird and, and move his arms like wings. And as he goes through his, his trance dance, he's gathering the spirit of the bird and the many other animals. And on his trance dance, he, go, he, go, he eventually goes into the other world, the netherworld, the underworld, where he communicates with the deceased, typically deceased shaman, to bring back knowledge or information and strength to cure someone in the land of the living. And that's, that's the essence of the shamanic experience around the world, you know, slight differences between them. Some people use drugs, got it. But in, traditionally in um, Siberia, they didn't, okay? And in North America, they didn't. They were using pain. They used the trance dance and they used pain with it. So there's a famous story of Chief Sitting Bull. And you know the story, the, the following day, actually I'll tell you, so he dances on the, 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 the sun dance and he's tethered to, through his skin, he's tethered to a pole uh, of a cottonwood tree. And over three days he dances and he moves and there's people dancing around him, they're tethered to skulls through their skin and they're dragging him around. And 
And he fought, and after, actually it was after two days, he, he, he goes into exhaustion and goes into his trance, he goes into his trance. And from that trance, Sitting Bull has this dream that um, the, the soldiers will fall, have no ears and they'll fall like grasshoppers. And the day or so after that is when Custer's last stand and the American army gets decimated by Lakota Sioux. So the, 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 trance, the trance experience can be actuated many different ways um, including DMT, psilocybin, but also through pain and suffering. Um, and the sitting bowl is a clear example of that. And so on the pillow of the cave panel, we, when I said that we have these, these, these people that overlap with the animals, the man overlaps with the horse, he becomes a therianthrope, but he's gaining strength from the horse. Right. Okay. So, so the therianthrope, the which became the centaur, the Greeks kind of got that, they mixed that one up. So you gain strength from the horse. There's something also interesting about almost all the animals on these panels, the, the, the adult animals are female. Except I think the only one that's not a female is the lion, the, the male lion, who's accompanied by a, a lioness. And I can say that the other ones are all females because on almost every case, they're accompanied by their juvenile. Right. So the hero on his journey, while the, he's... He's well. There is a damsel in distress. The hero is helped by the women, the females, and, and that's who he learns them. They take care of him. They give him strength on his on hero's journey. So it, it's not Obi Wan Kenobi, it's, and it's not Yoda. It's their it's their female counterparts. And what we're talking about now is pre shamanic religion or faith, which is animism. And animism, Native Americans would prior pre-Columbus, Colombian were, were animists. Animists believe that mountains have a spirit, that the wind speaks to them, and that you can, you know, you can communicate with rocks and trees. That's what animists believe. They believe that you can look through the eyes of a lion or an elephant or a cheetah, and you can see what they see and draw strength from that. That's animism. And the theriantrope is, is an extension of animism, such that you're becoming one with the animal or multiple animals as you transform between them, as the hero does in this journey, as does the, the Siberian shaman. Um, and as Native Americans do when they go into their, their dances, they often dance when they have a feather or a feathered headdress. Um, they are taking on the strength of the bird, typically an eagle. Why? Right. Why do you feel um, that they're exclusively, almost exclusively female animals that he's drawing strength for? What's your theory on that? Because the, so I, I actually, first of all, I didn't recognize that for a long time. Okay. So I'm, I'm, the book project was probably about three years. It wasn't about a year and a half in that I recognized that they're female. <laughs> and it just didn't dawn on me because I'm looking at those animals. And then, um, so I think that the, the males, the, the females are, he, the hero on his journey, or the apprentice that goes to, to Africa, he needs to be cared for in his journey. He needs to learn how to, how to protect himself um, in those environments. So perhaps he, he um, elephants in, who are traditionally in West North Africa are more docile than those in Sub-Saharan Africa. And that's why the, um, the Carthaginian, the, in ancient times, they, they used elephants from like Tunisia uh, for their wars that they would carry. So he could go 
hang around by the elephants and he'd be safe from the lions because the lions aren't going to mess with the elephants. Okay. Um, he could learn from the, the giraffe that you can, cl you can climb to a high place. He can learn from the, um, from the, um, from the, uh, the dolphins which direction the current's going the Strait of Gibraltar. Because the dolphins aren't swimming against the current to go from point A to B. Okay, and it's actually, actually Pisces, I said, was the dolphin. Actually, he takes, he takes the dolphin in one direction and he takes a whale in the other direction. And it makes sense. So Pisces, in the Paleolithic tradition, was both a whale and a dolphin, depending on which way you're going on that journey that you're reenacting. So if, you're, if, you're, if your myth is saying you, gotta, you, know, you swim with the dolphin that's taking from north to south, you can't take Pisces back again. So they, they, they swap it and it becomes the whale to go back again. So there's a lot of lost, there's a lot, the, the, the Greeks saw that, saw the dolphin, um, and the, but the Greeks made it del the constellation Delphinus. Okay. And they, they uh, so there's actually, the Paleolithic tradition, there's, there's double, at least double of everything because of which, which direction of travel you're going. Wow. But yeah, that might help you with the Theriantropus where, it is, the, it is the shamanic experience to take on the strength of the animal to help the hero on his journey, whether that be from Spain to North Africa and back, or within Siberia to travel into the other world to seek assistance from the dead. Yeah, it's something that's ubiquitous, isn't it? The, the therianthrope, when you whichever pick whichever ancient culture you want, whether it's uh, fish people in South America and mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's, it's just one of these things that keeps cropping up and uh, it's interesting if you can sort of find a common source for it all, isn't it? Well, you, well, we have an earlier source. So Amish, you're quiet there. Can you tell us of any theriantropes in modern times? Test. <laughs> Come on, Amish. Amish Matt, Amish Matt. <laughs> um, I'm trying to think. Well, I suppose Hot Mike. I've there's lots one. in. There's what's it's not going to be edited out. There's lots in uh, novels, isn't there? I suppose. Okay. So you would How say about closer to home, closer to home, closer to this time. We're not talking Tolkien. I'm uh, Phil. You're up. Go on. I was thinking of horror. So you've got like werewolves and. Uh, okay, werewolves. Yeah. Uh, Bigfoot. Batman. Uh, How about <laughs> Spider Man. How about Ant Man? Uh, They're all therianthropes. They're all characters that we borrow the strengths of the animals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're all made that link. We're, we're telling. So there's something we still have animism in us. Okay, we can't escape from this this concept that we can draw on the strengths of the animals. Right, and they don't. Aquaman. I mean, you just go down the line. Yeah. And so. It's the same story. In this Pellet of Cavemans, the man over the hero overlaps, actually overlaps with the with the dolphin to become a merman, becomes Aquaman. Yeah. <laughs> and the, these modern instances, they don't physically change or metamorph metamorphosize. They they just sort of uh take the qualities of the like spirit animal, if you will. Okay. But they, they change and they change back. Right. Mm. Right? And that's what the hero does on his journey in the Pellet of the Cave Image. And the, sh the, the, the shaman in the Siberian tradition. 
he changes into the bird, he changes into the horse, he changes into the whatever other animal to help him, to aid him. Because we ourselves, um, we can't do all these things. We can't save humanity by just walking out the door. We need to have this, we need to be able to run as fast as a horse. We need to be able to climb as high as a monkey. We need to have the speed of a cheetah. We never swim like a dolphin. And in the in the superhero, in the Marvel comic tradition, each individual takes on those characteristics, one characteristic of one animal. But they join together as a whole. You have a you know Marvel comics is a league of heroes, right? Mm. Uh, of superheroes. So they may have, they might have their own you know editions, right? But then they all come together to have the league of, of um, heroes, and that's combining all the different instances that we find this Paleolithic tradition. So have have we learned anything in forty thousand years? Amish Matt. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> Amish Phil. Have we learned anything? Of course we have. Surely we have. Technology and our potential. I I don't know. This is this thing that we always talk about is that there's not really anything new under the sun. (laughs) Except there's nothing new under the sun, exactly. Well, no, I think a lot of things have um, been regurgitated, haven't they? Reprocessed. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a, a lot, like you're saying, you know, like the hero's journey goes back to oral tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of that, I think, gets recycled, and a lot of stories and storylines can be retraced to things that are ancient, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a reason why the Star Wars franchise was, was so successful in mm-hmm. that it, it followed this blueprint which Joseph Campbell identified. Mm-hmm. And there's a reason why, you know, Disney are so successful and why Lucas films are so successful. There's, something... there's actually books on screenwriting along the hero's journey. Yeah. And so if you, they're online. So people in Hollywood, no one writes a, no one writes a movie now, blockbuster, potential blockbuster without reading the book. Cause you have to have all those steps. So people identify with it years ago, there was a Seinfeld episode you guys had I'm sure you have reruns there. Yeah. yeah. And so in the Seinfeld episode was, um, it, it went in reverse of the story. So it's kind of convoluted. It was called like the reverse episode or something. But when they put it onto DVD years later, they put it in the correct order because they thought it was clever. You know, let's try this thing out, but no one really got it. They thought it was stupid. And so instead of, instead of throwing away the episode, they put it in the correct order. And the people didn't recognize the whole thing because they, this whole thing went in reverse and people couldn't follow the story. Okay. Mm. So that's why we, that's why screenwriters use this hero's journey motif and they have, that we don't do things in reverse. You may start off with the end of the story that, you know, and then, you know, we go back five days and here we are. Right. But as far as I know, that sign for the episode was the only one that went from the end to the beginning. And it was a complete failure because people didn't get it. <laughs> Have you, uh, to, our minds can't handle that. We can't, we can't take this whole story in over an hour and then have to reprocess it to go back because we lose it in the meantime. What are you going to say, Matt? No, I was going to say, have you ever watched Memento? That's in reverse. I haven't seen that. Yeah, it's a Christopher Nolan. You know, the guy who did like Batman, Inception. Yeah. Those kinds of films. Yeah, that's. I think the first half is the last half, and the last half is the first half, basically. 
Okay, but see what the Seinfeld did was they actually ran, so let's say they had twenty scenes. They yeah. went from twenty, nineteen, yeah. eighteen black to one. Yeah. 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 So we, but, we can do half. We can do half. Yeah. We have the capacity to half, but we don't have the capacity to go back twenty scenes. It just doesn't I'm just wondering then, is is there something then do you think there's something innate, something in our genetic makeup where we have to follow a story from beginning to end for us actually to make sense to us, I suppose. Yeah, you have so. to follow a set structure in order for it to appeal to to make sense of it, make make sense of it. And people don't go to the movies to learn about somebody else. People go to the movies and read books <laughs> to learn about themselves. Okay, yeah. and we you know we see characters on the screen that we we don't like, but we don't like them because we see ourselves in that individual, okay? And that's the, so yes, the stories are, they're part of the human experience, the part of who we are and how we express our knowledge. Um, and we read books that make sense to us. That we, mm-hmm. And so we, we unconsciously, we, we unconsciously process these things, okay? We don't, consciously, you know, say, you know, you know, I'm Darth Vader, you know, but every, but every dad is Darth Vader. <laughs> oh, don't say that. Don't huh? say that. And every dad is Luke, is Luke Skywalker. Phew. All of us have <laughs> no, a father okay. and all of us have been sons. So is your mm-hmm. uncle Ben Kenobi then? <laughs> and, and, um, That's lots of us have, we, whether or not we have a, um, actually Ben Kenobi is, Obi-Wan Kenobi is a, he's an adopted uncle of sorts. Yeah. So we've all had male mentors in our lives yeah. and they became our, our spiritual helpers. Mm. And that's why we, we, we understand them. We, you know, that's why I see, that's why we, we get the movie. Otherwise we wouldn't get the movie. It's really interesting that this is sort of ingrained in our psyche. It makes mm. you wonder if, if I know, you know, it's not um, ethical to do such an experiment, but if you took a, <laughs> a child, a baby, and just sort of isolated them, whether they would have the same reaction as as, as the rest of us who've, who've grown up in this cultural milieu. <laughs> See, I don't think this is human DNA. Wow. I think this is an animal DNA. I live here, as I said, I live here in Portland, Oregon. We have a zoo. If you don't like zoos, you're not going to like the Portland Zoo, okay? But <laughs> if you're okay with zoos, you're going to say, this is a pretty good zoo, okay? And in We're the Portland okay. Zoo, we have a big lion area, and it has a little mountain. And whenever the, whenever the lion, the lions are on that mountain, the male, the dominant male is always, the, the, the mature male is always at the top. Just below him are the lionesses, and at the bottom are a young, a young male. Now in the in Africa, it all makes sense because the male lion, the, the, the mature lion at the top is keeping guard. He doesn't hunt. The females go out and hunt because if he gets hurt, another lion will come, another male lion will come in, challenge, kill him, kill off his juveniles and as him as well, and take over his lionesses. So this all makes sense if you live in Africa. It makes no sense if you live in the Portland Zoo. They're all fed. <laughs> so you don't need it, right? What's the what's the point? Well, the, it goes to, down to the DNA, and it also goes down to chemical. So he's he's got raging testosterone, right? And the females have raging estrogen. 
It's who the lions are. It's who we are. So we, we, in our DNA, we have the, the, chemo, the chemistry that creates these characters. And the, the, the lion, the mature lion at the top, when he's challenged by another lion, which is, doesn't happen in the Portland Zoo, um, but he's, he's challenged on the, on the savanna, that person becomes the villain. And he's protecting his lioness and he's protecting his young. And so he is the, he, he, he becomes the, he's the hero. But the other lion is really the, his own hero on his own journey. When he, <laughs> and he, he attacks this, the home-based lion who is the villain. And he's, he, he, you know, he, he gets rid of the, the villain lion. So the stranger who was at, into the room, the, the stranger who's about to enter the, um, the door on the other side is the hero on his journey. Okay. They're the same characters and that's who we are within us. So we can go back to the Portland zoo and we got chatter of, you know, lion roars, you know, the monkeys chatter. Right. Mm. Okay. And we've got the lion King there because we have this juvenile male at the bottom who, and he will, if, assuming he stays in the Portland zoo, when the mature lion dies, um, he is, or um, they take him out because once the, the juvenile grows enough, it, they don't want to fight in the lion tank. Okay, um, so the mature lion, once he becomes susceptible to the young, the juvenile, he will. They're going to send him off to retirement home for lions. Um, <laughs> he will become, you know, the Simba, the, then become the king of the lion king. And the st- the difference between us and lions is that lions can't tell the story. That's the only difference. They wow. lions, lions have this in their DNA, but they don't have the the absolute myth that they can share. They all know how this works because they they are carrying this from Africa when this was really important to them. It was part of their their own survival and to carry on their seed. Wow! And I can go, we can go through lots of animals and we can find <laughs> these same scenarios. Yeah, these archetypes are everywhere, I guess, aren't they? The archetypes, and we we can make movies out of yeah. lions, yeah. Mm. just as we can, you know, a a kid who doesn't want to work for his dad in the stationery store, but wants to travel <laughs> through the stars. Yeah. Well, Bernie, this has been really fascinating. Thanks for coming on. I think we should maybe wrap up. We're just over we're an hour at ten minutes now. If that's all right with you, absolutely. We'll do maybe another day. We'll we'll, we'll go. We need to. Go, we never did go into the land of the dead. Oh, oh, yeah. We'll save that two. part two. We'll yeah. Episode two, another yeah. time. Give it a few months. Empire yeah, Strikes def- Back. Empire Strikes Back. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. Open well, invitations. Uh, Matt, Phil, and ben, the silent Ben, <laughs> um, it's been an absolute pleasure. If people want to get more of my work, my webpage before Ryan.com is like the portal. You, yep. you enter the cave. Um, if you have like any, like you're schizophrenic, any sort of those conditions, don't go there. Don't read it because it'll put you over the edge. And from and from there, you can find all. I'm on Twitter and Instagram yep. and Facebook and every other possible way you can link through. Well, as usual, eavesdroppers, all the links will be in the show notes for uh, yeah. Ryan uh, uh, before Ryan.com and all your social media. So do check out mm-hmm. Bernie's stuff there and go into more depth. So we'll wrap up. Um, do you want okay. to stay on the line for a minute, Bern- Bernie? Just while we play ourselves out. Absolutely. Okay, thanks for listening, eavesdroppers. We'll be back next week with Moxie Labouche. (laughs) The one and only Moxie's coming on next week. Right, thanks very much. Take care of yourselves. Yeah. Bye. See you next week.
Well, that was fun. Yeah. <laughs>